0: Lord, we have the words of eternal life. As Peter said to Jesus, where shall we go? God, there's no place we'd rather be than in Your house with Your people. And there's nothing that we would delight in more than to see people who are are wayward right now. God, come to the, the grace and knowledge of Christ. Lord, I, I think as the, the message will be handed out tonight, many, many tracts that people can be read, and as the message will be heard uh, with Ryan speaking to many, God going and being there with the crowds, I, I pray that you would, God, by your grace, bear fruit. We may not know even where that fruit is or where it comes from, but I, I pray, Lord, that that you would bear fruit by their faithfulness. I pray for Ryan, especially just even as he is nervous and even had some physical symptoms perhaps because of that in recent days. I pray you'd help him. I pray that as he steps out in obedience in these ways, as just share your truth, God, that you might, uh, might bless him and encourage him and strengthen him. God, just to uh, live before his family and live before his co-workers and live before a church family as one who believes genuinely, truly, deeply in the message of Christ. So, God, we just ask your blessing. Would pray God you'd stir this to our remembrance tonight as well. Um, as that takes place. Father, so glorify Yourself this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Thanks. <clears throat> well, this past week, some will seek to engage themselves in the sufferings of Christ by inflicting some suffering upon themselves, by depriving themselves of some pleasure they enjoy, or others commit themselves to various disciplines by... Seeking silence and solitude or reading a book or keeping a journal for these 40 days or, or giving up something that's, that's precious, that's distracting their walk with Christ. Others maybe use this time to turn it outward, to, to serve others, doing loving tasks, visiting people who can't get out, shut-ins, working a soup kitchen, seeking reconciliation with other people. And I just think all these are wonderful things. Um, these are, are, are things that, that people um, might do to help their walk with God. And if a, a particular time in the church calendar motivates people to the righteous living, listen, I'm all for that, but I want to say there are some dangers in it too. One danger is that a commitment to Christ can be a seasonal thing. I mean, think it just 40 days and you can almost be led like, okay, I'm just going to follow Jesus really hard with all the gumption of my flesh for these 40 days and then after that, return to a former manner of life. In fact, that's the whole principle behind, behind Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras is French for Mardi. it's Tuesday. Gras is fat, it's called Fat Tuesday. The idea is it's celebrated the Tuesday before Ash Wednesday because you know that you're going to be some fasting and prayer these next 40 days. And so what you do is you pig out and you be gluttonous on the day before that happens. And then when Easter comes about, then you go back to where you lived before. And that just kind of, it's a disconnect. And many Mardi Gras parties are far from godly you know anything about that, and I just say there's a danger in making your Christianity seasonal. Christ is worthy to be followed all the time. We can follow after him not merely just during the forty days before Easter. Another danger with uh, celebrating Lent is it can easily move to a workspace righteousness where you fast and pray, be quiet before the Lord, you can easily accept, think that Wow, look at what I'm doing for God. That God accepts me. Look at all my righteous deeds and how, how good I am. And as you focus your attention upon performing good deeds for others, you can easily lift yourself up and think of, of how good I am and acceptable before God. But our standing before God is only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Which, if you know where I'm going, in Philippians chapter 3, It's a great introduction because it's a great antidote to all the the things that happen in the time of Lent. Because Paul will put forth just the bankruptcy of works. The bankruptcy of religious merit. And will lift up the glories of Jesus. What a timely word for us. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Our text this morning is simply verses 8 and 9. I thought about going to verse 11, but... I just want us to savor the Gospel of Christ, which, which comes really clearly here in these two verses. I'm in no rush to walk through these verses and to get through them quickly. So we're going to slow down and just look at, at these two verses. And let me make a comment about Lent and Rock Valley Bible Church. Now, many of you know this. Some of you are newer to the church. What, what we have sought to do during Lent is rather than encouraging you some extra commitment during 40 days before Easter, only to see that be like a New Year resolution that you fail in or it feeds the flesh. What we have done as a church is to celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday in Lent. Just as a means to to lift our hearts week after week after week after week upon the, the crucifixion of Christ. It says whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper, First Corinthians 11 says this, we, we proclaim His death until He comes. And, and just what we've done is we just... Normally we celebrate the Lord's Supper every four to six weeks, but during this period of Lent, we'll celebrate it every week. I know some churches celebrate it every week, and I've heard that sometimes it gets quite unwieldy, and I heard sometimes that it can lose its flavor because it's like every week. And so, what we're seeking to do is kind of get a taste of that, feel that, but then we'll go back to our every four to six weeks, just reminding of that. So. Come and, and be engaged. I'm going to do my best to direct our hearts to Christ. And, and the text today is really easy. It it's all about Jesus. It's all about His sacrifice for our sins. Verse eight, for Philippians three, verse eight. More than that, Paul writes, "I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things." and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. These verses really are an application of what we saw last week in verses 4-7. through Remember, my message was entitled, No Confidence in the Flesh. Paul says, boy, if anyone else can put confidence in flesh, I can. That's what verse 4 is about. And then he puts forth seven religious advantages he has. Four of them inherited. Three of them earned or worked for or obtained through his, through his own efforts. He said, I was circumcised the eighth day. I was of the nation of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Put him smack dab in the middle, in the heart of the Jewish community right in the heart of the covenant community of God. And then he put three advantages through his own efforts. He said as to law, a Pharisee. He he was an expert in the law. He was a religious leader among his people. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He was going out with with, um, a vengeance to anybody who would be following the way, which he thought was the way against God which was Christianity, and he would arrest them and bring them to prison, bring them to justice. He was zealous as to the righteousness which is in the law, he said, found blameless. You could not find a single commandment in the Old Testament that he failed to do or any prohibition that he did. Played him, placed him right at the head of all the Jews of his day, not only in the heart inherited of his uh, in the covenant community, but also just through his efforts. N- nobody could stand taller than, than Paul did. But after all of that, then comes this shocking statement of verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, if that doesn't come as shocking to you, it's because you've heard the Gospel so many, many, many times that you know that it's not our religious deeds that get us before God. And it's, it's, it, it's not those things that seem to be gained to other people. You know that religious works can't save you. You know that salvation comes by the grace of God through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And that's good. However, the first century, Jews and proselytes who heard this would have been shocked at this message. It would have been like, whoa! Where did that come from? So I want to try to illustrate... Particularly for you kids, but also for Andy. Okay, so just for uh, what <laughs> what what this was like, he says, "I was circumcised the eighth day. I was of the nation of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews." As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. That was Paul. Inflated, perhaps, in his own mind. And then you know what he said? Verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, I have counted as <coughs> loss for the sake of Christ. That's shocking. And such is the shock that people would have heard. Our, our righteous deeds are like a, a shattered balloon. That <sniffs> makes a good party party thing now, right? Yeah. <sniffs> Mardi Gras. This is for Mardi Gras, right? It's useless. It's not going to be a balloon at all. And and verses 8 and 9 are just going to expand upon verses 4 through 7. You can see that even right there in the first couple words of verse 8. The New American Standard reads, more than that. The English Standard Version reads, indeed. The NIV says, what is more? The King James says, yea, doubtless. And the New King James says, yet, indeed five different translations to this word because it's hard to really understand what exactly this word means, but it means this. It means, yes, indeed, more. This is surely the case. What I said in verses 4-7, through I now pound into your mind. Now, now the difference between verse 7 and verse 8 is really subtle. It's one of tense. Verse 7 is in the past tense. Whatever things... Were gained to me. Those things I have counted as loss. That is past tense. But now in verse 8, he goes present tense. More than that, I count all things to be loss. What he is, is viewing in, in the present. And right here we see Paul's point in this train of thought that no longer is he just looking back to say, okay, all these religious things I did as a, a Jewish man that are nothing and meaningless. But now that I'm a Christian, right? Look at all the good things I'm doing. No, no. He says, now that I'm a believer and a follower in Jesus, all the things that I am doing, I also count as loss. Is what he is saying. In other words, religious deeds after becoming a follower of Jesus, they're all loss. In fact, there's a message. It's all loss. It does not help me At all. Now, that might sound like a bad thing, like Paul's in a really bad state, but really it's a good thing because Paul has found something even better than righteous deeds. More than that, he says in verse 8, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In other words, knowing Christ is better than anything that we do or know. In this life. My message this morning is entitled The Value of Knowing Christ. You know, this thing's this thing's going. I'm just gonna go here if you wanna if you wanna change me. <coughs> the value of knowing Christ. First point The value of knowing Christ is worth the loss of everything. It's worth the loss of everything. That's the main point of verse eight. More than that I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, and he repeats again, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. It's all lost. It's all in view of Christ. All things are lost. It's like that reading we read about John Piper, just just all things. Just Jesus is the best. He is the the supreme. It, and, and, and anything that distracts from him, we, we will choose Jesus. Now, I heard a, a great extended analogy by a preacher named Al Martin. I don't know if any of you know him. He's a Reformed Baptist preacher of Trinity Baptist Church in Montville, New Jersey. He, he retired. He's getting older. Uh, he can barely hear now, I think, is some of the, the difficulty. He's residing in Michigan doing some writing, which I hope God blesses. A great preacher. He did an extended analogy to explain what what, what Paul is talking about here. I, I found it really helpful. He said this: Imagine a man who's been happily married. In fact, he's he's been happily married for thirty years, but he didn't marry until he was thirty-five years old, and up till thirty-five, he considered himself a confirmed bachelor. That was his doctrine. That's what he preached. He was so convinced of the benefits of bachelorhood, that not only was he a bachelor, but he was even repulsively aggressive in pushing forth his, his bachelor theology, if you will. He was evangelistic, trying to get others to be bachelors for life. Whenever he found a single person, he tried to right keep that person. Confirm them. Yes, you're single. Yes, that's a good thing. You ought to stay there. Here, here are the benefits. Think about it. I, I have an independence. I can do what I want whenever I want. I have freedom. And He had all those advantages for 35 years. And, but when he was 35 years old, Mary came into his life. We'll call him John. And uh, now, after some 30 years of marriage, he hears his group of these single people being bombarded by other aggressive bachelors who are saying the same things that he used to say. And, and these young men were saying again and again if you really want to live, if you really want to live life in its fullness, don't get married. Avoid the marriage state because bachelorhood is the essence of living. Well, upon hearing this, here's what the, the man writes a letter to be circulated among his, his friends. He's in the course of a letter, here's what he writes, if anyone knew the advantages of bachelorhood, I knew them. And then he lists all the advantages of his bachelorhood and how, how good he was. And then he says in his letter, I too once counted the distinct advantages of bachelorhood as gains. But the things that were gains, I counted as loss for the sake of Mary. It's verse 7. Now, verse 8 goes like this. In fact, I furthermore affirm that after 30 years of marriage, I still regard all the so-called advantages of bachelorhood as loss for the surpassing value of knowing and dwelling with Mary Ellen, my dear wife, for whose sake I have suffered the loss of all the advantages of bachelorhood and regard them at this very hour as refuse in order that I may continue in union with my wife enjoying all the objective and subjective privileges, joys and burdens of the marriage state. And so what? what obviously I hope you can see the, the analogy is that whereas John was zealous for his bachelorhood, so also was Paul zealous for his previous life. And whereas John had found delight in his marriage to Mary as yes, so far superior to anything that he faced in his bachelor days, so also Paul could speak of the delight of knowing Christ to be far better in his days in pharisaism and paul is now writing as a a satisfied christian just as john wrote as a satisfied married man and and that's what verse eight is saying he says because you think about how long has paul become a christian at this point many years 20 years maybe it's been some time and he says listen i count all things to be lost In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so I am again Christ. So you you look here, what is the surpassing value? What is it that's superior? What is it that's so great, Paul? Knowing Christ is what's great. In fact, that's what salvation is. It's knowing Jesus intimately. It's not just knowing about Jesus. It is knowing Jesus personally. It is having a relationship with Jesus. That's why many people rightly talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus. This word here about knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, it doesn't mean just knowing the facts. It means knowing Him as a a person. One to whom you speak, one to whom you listen, one to whom you obey. Now, Now, surely your relationship with Jesus is different than any other earthly relationship you have. See, He's God and we are humans. And we don't hear His audible voice. We do have His written Word. And we, we, don't, we don't even see Him. But as Peter says, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. We don't, we don't see Him. We, we haven't seen Him. But we know Him. And we believe in Him. And we commune with Him. And that's far better than anything that we might have in this life. It's knowing Jesus that far surpasses anything else we might possess here on earth. And and Jesus said it this way, John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life. He's praying this high priestly prayer. This is eternal life that they may know you and the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Note that Jesus didn't say this will be eternal life if they know you. He said no. He said, this is eternal life to know you and your only Son, Jesus Christ. Now, it's right, John 3.16, to speak about for those who believe in Him they will have eternal life. That, that's, that's right. But this is talking about e- eternal life is now knowing Jesus. I think it's talking about just the quality of life. We have eternal life if we know Jesus. And that's the heart of Paul right here, right? Knowing Jesus is better than all things. Knowing Jesus is more valuable than all things because it is is eternal life. And what could be more valuable than eternal life? Using parables, Jesus said it this way. Matthew 13, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value... He went and sold all that he had and bought it. See, Paul had found the treasure. He discovered the pearl and willingly sold all. No buyer's remorse here. You don't get any sense from Jesus' parables that the man who sold everything to buy the field was like, oh, do I got to do this? And oh. No, he did it with joy is what the text says. And the merchant sold all that he owned because what he bought was worth far more than what he sold. He made a profit on this. This is a better state. And though all things are lost in this life, there's something greater. It's knowing Christ Jesus. And Jesus said it this way, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses life life for My sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Yes, knowing Jesus will cost you your life. It will cost you a lot of things. It will cost you a lot of pleasures in this life. But what's your life on earth? James says it's just a a breath, a vapor that, that fades away. Gaining your life with Jesus is worth far more than you can ever imagine. As James Eliot said, right? He's no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's why the value of knowing Jesus Christ is worth the loss of everything because it far exceeds anything that we will ever lose. And Paul even picked this up in chapter 1. You remember when we are going through that chapter where Paul is just talking about wanting to die and to be with Jesus than to live on in the flesh. Chapter 1, verse 21, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And uh, that means that living is wonderful because that's eternal life. That is with Jesus. And dying is better. And then he he weighs... Right, but I'm hard pressed. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Uh, I have the desire to part and be with Christ because that's very much better. Yet to remain on the flesh is necessary for you. And Jesus, in Paul, sacrificed his own personal comfort and remained with everyone rather than being with Jesus. But Jesus was his heart. That was his his life. He he sought to know Jesus, and he found that is more valuable than anything. That's Paul's point. He did what the rich young ruler failed to do. You remember when this man came to Jesus? He came and said, Teacher, what good things should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who's good. But if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. And he said, Well, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbors yourself. And the young man, just like Paul, blameless in the law, just said, all these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? And Jesus seeing that he wasn't. He was self-righteous in himself. He wasn't broken. And he wasn't willing to give up all. Jesus said, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor. Then you have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. But the young man heard this statement and he went away grieving because he was one who owned much property. He wasn't willing to forsake that. He considered that to be gain more than Christ. But Paul, you know what, he he gave up everything. And rather than holding to his own righteousness, as this rich young ruler did, Paul confessed his sin was broken. He gave up everything. Now, it's not that Paul went around poor all the time. There were times, though, when he was poor and times where he had plenty, but through it all, he held lightly to the things of the world, which I think is the key here. You need to give up your possessions. To put them out there. God lets you use them sometimes, but he may not. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. That's when uh, Paul is, is writing at the end, acknowledging the gift. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you revived your concern for me. That you've given me this this gift. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. But look what he says in verse 11. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. There were time in Paul's ministry where, where God richly blessed him and he had lots to enjoy. I'm thinking maybe even in Philippi when Lydia was converted, she was a a, a merchant woman, probably had a, a fine house. He was there in the house. He was enjoying Lydia's house and had a lot. And there were other times when he was not having very much, but but at all times he was clinging to Christ and so he was okay whether he had. He was hungry or, or he was filled. When he had an abundance abundatory suffering need, he was okay because Christ was the most important thing in his life. And it wasn't merely physical possessions he gave up. He gave up religious standing. He gave up religious opportunity. Can, can you even think about what it would be like to you know, be a religious leader in your system and then say, well, I'm, I'm just going to turn all that aside. I'm going to start all over. Now, he didn't really start over because it was the fulfillment of his religion, but in some regards, he started over because he lost all his social standing. He lost all of his comfort of leadership of where he was. And I think that's a little bit what Nicodemus was struggling with the night when he came to Jesus. remember? How there's a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher because no one can do the signs you do unless God is with them. And then Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. Okay, you're the teacher in Israel. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And there's some debate here about how much Nicodemus understood. I think he understood a lot what was going on. Jesus said, you need to be transformed, totally changed. And Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Like, how can you start over when you're, you're old and you got all these religious accomplishments? you got all these things piled up. It's very hard. And you know that too. The older you get, the harder it is to change your ways. But they're, they're talking on the spiritual realm as well. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He said, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Don't be amazed, Nicodemus. I said you must be born again. The wind blows where it will. The sound you hear, but you do not know where it comes from, where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. We're not talking so much about starting over. We're talking about just changing intricately in your spirit to have a different orientation is what we're talking about. We're talking about the work of regeneration in a in a man's heart. And Nicodemus said, "How can these things be?" And then Jesus said, "You're a teacher of Israel, and you don't understand these things." <clears throat> and he laughed that night, not following Jesus, not wanting to start over, not not seeking and truly understanding and God was not not working Just how, how can I how can I start over and I think Nicodemus was in the same situation Paul was a Pharisee religious standing reputation a teacher in Israel the one who's got all the Bible answers and, and I'm sure that he had a lot of inherited characteristics of Paul that I'm sure he was circumcised I would not doubt that he was circumcised the eighth day whether he was an eighth day or either he was of the nation of Israel for sure he as to the law he was a Pharisee as to community he was a teacher as to authority, he was a ruler in Israel. And following Jesus would cost him all those things. And Nicodemus wasn't willing to give them up initially. And the good news is, you read through the Gospel of John, you find find that he finally did denounce all his religious deeds like Paul. And I'm sure he could say with Paul, as he was there with the disciples, Bringing spices to the body of Jesus. I'm I'm sure you could say with Paul, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. I mean, you just imagine Nicodemus in the midst of the Sanhedrin standing out saying, I'm going to follow this man. I'm going to follow Jesus. He would have lost everything. It's like a Republican coming out and saying, I'm a Democrat. Or vice versa, Democrat saying, I'm a Republican now. Just kind of cast out of the party. You're all done. That's what it cost him. <clears throat> it's worth the loss of everything. Now, now look at how Paul views his religious attainments. How, how Paul views all these things. He says, I count them but rubbish. Now, there's some debate as to what this Exact word means. Okay. It's only used here in the New Testament. Just here. It's used elsewhere in uh, Greek literature. But the Greek word here is skubala. And um, most translations use the word rubbish. So the NIV uses the word trash. It's that, that stuff that we eat, The dinner we just kind of get out. That, that may be stuff that has been in the refrigerator for a few days and starts thinking. In fact, um, I was just out in my garage this morning. Kind of coming, getting ready to come here, and we've got something in the garage that is—I didn't have time to follow my nose, right? Where, where is that? But it is stinking something bad, and it's—it's it's going to be purged this afternoon. Okay, I'm gonna—I'm gonna find that out. But that's what Paul says: all my righteous deeds are like that rotting, smelly. Food or something, potatoes or who knows what it is. That's one translation. It's just smelly trash. There's another way it can be translated. The King James translates it as dung, manure, excrement. So again, this is the time to engage the kids again. <clears throat> you guys know what this is? Who knows what this is? L.A., what is this? you know what this is? Do you know the English word? It's a, it's a diaper, and you you put this on your child, right? Snap it all up, and you let your child go do its thing, and then you you lay it down like this, and then you go and you, <laughs> and you wipe it up, and you put it all in there, and then and then you then you get it, and you smack it like this, and then you throw it as far away as you can, because it's stinky and it's smelly. And it's yucky. And the Brandon household, I have waged a campaign to call the brown stuff that comes in here scuba-lon. And Avon uh, thinks it's kind of funny. But I think it's a good picture. And, and whether that is an accurate translation or whether the translation should be more rubbish like it is here, the idea is the same. It means some rotten, moldy, yucky, stinky awful thing that we just want to get rid of. And Paul says this, any religious attainment that I had, any righteous deeds and works that I do, really in light of knowing Jesus, it's like stinky smelly stuff that I don't I don't even want. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He's continually counting Himself. He is present tense. And so I just say, right by way of application to your family, is this your perspective? You know, last week my text was pretty interesting because the one point of application was not anything to do, not anything to go out and work at, but it was more just what's your perspective of, of what you do in life? What's your perspective of your religious attainments so or your own righteousness? How do you view your acts and works before God? How do you view your prayers? How do you view your Bible reading? How do you view your skill at training your children? Or your commitment to the church? Or the fact that you were on time today? Thank you very much for those of you who were on time. For those of you who weren't, we'll extend grace. But it was a different place in here this Sunday then. But do you like, I was on time? Or maybe your service in the nursery or children's church? Or maybe your evangelistic efforts or maybe your hospitality, how you've got your home open to strangers, or, or how about the, the counsel that you give to other people? Or how about the, the resources that you, you have to be able to give to other people? Or or how about the, the fruit of the spirit in your life? That that you've come to be a pretty patient person or a joyful person or have a lot of self control? Or what about the your leadership or, or submission in the marriage, right? How your you're working out your roles in your marriage. Or, or maybe the fruit that's bearing forth in the lives of your children or, or the help that you give to your neighbor or the honor that you give to your parents or the, the Bible verses that you've posted all around your house so that everyone knows you're a Christian or your, your commitment to the poor or your, your righteous deeds during Lent. How, how do you view all those things? Do you trust them? Are you built up because of them? Do you think that they will help you when you're standing before the Lord? Now, here's here's a curious thing. I just, you know, the Bible does speak about rewards. The Bible does encourage us in these righteous deeds. The Bible does encourage us in all these things. But, but today's perspective, Paul is just saying that in view of Christ. Scuba on. Would you rather just throw them out because Jesus is so valuable to you? It's the call of this text. And and verse 9 then brings us to why Jesus is so valuable. Not only is the value of knowing Christ worth the loss of everything, but also the value of knowing Christ is this, because He gives us righteousness. He gives us righteousness. That's all what verse 9 is about. It's knowing Jesus... Through that, that we are made right with God. It's not our works of righteousness that make us right with God. Right? Titus 3.5 He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing, regeneration, renewing by the Holy Spirit. Our righteousness before God comes only because of God's mercy to us through Jesus Christ through us knowing Jesus Christ, believing in Jesus Christ, trusting in Christ. And that's Paul's point in verse 9. All these things are lost. I count them as rubbish that I may be found in Him. In Him. In Jesus. United with Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. Or all these religious deeds that I just kind of picked off. That's not where my righteousness comes from, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Now see, the very reason why Paul is so willing to give up everything and and, and the reason why Paul is willing to just throw away his religious deeds is because his righteousness, his righteous acts, don't count anything before God. At the end of the day, Paul wants to be righteous. He wants to stand before God. He wants to be in Jesus. He wants to be complete. He wants to attain what he can to be right with God. And he'd never do that through works. And at the end of the day, it's where Paul was looking to do, because you don't become righteous through the works of law, because through the knowledge of through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You don't come to God through the law or through your deeds. Rather, you come with the righteousness that only God gives. He only grants it by faith. Like look again, verse nine, and that I may be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. A righteousness from God comes through faith. A few weeks ago I mentioned Genesis fifteen six. Abraham becomes the model. Paul expounds that in Romans chapter four. But in Genesis fifteen we see Abraham believed the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. It was through the faith of Abraham that God considered Abraham as Righteous. Theologians call this imputation. God imputes His righteousness to us. God thinks of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. Here's what Wayne Grudem explains in the systematic theology. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us and therefore God thinks of it as belonging to us. It's not our own righteousness, but Christ's righteousness that is freely given to us. So Paul can say that God made Christ to be our wisdom, our righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. And Paul says his goal is to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own based on the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul knows that the righteousness he has before God is nothing of his own doing. It is the righteousness of God that comes through Jesus Christ. Imputation. Know that word and love that word. Though we are sinners, He imputes righteousness to us and considers us as righteous sinners though we be. Now, this is in contrast to the Roman Catholic doctrine of infusion, whereby, as I quote R.C. Sproul, a sinner cooperates and assents to the grace of justification in which righteousness is infused in Him. Okay, so let's look. Here's a Roman Catholic doctrine. Infusion. You believe in God. He then gives you righteousness which you possess. And that righteousness enables you to do righteousness. And when you stand before God, He looks at you and declares you righteous because in fact you are are righteous because God's righteousness was infused into your very being. And the things you do actually merit your forgiveness. In fact, some people are so righteous by grace that their own righteousness is even more than they need. And their own righteousness overflows into this treasury of merit that God can use and dip out of to reduce the temporal punishment of other people. That's Roman Catholic doctrine of infusion. It's making us righteous, making us earned before God. Now, I contrast that with classical Protestant theology, which I think is everything that Paul is talking about here. That's imputation. Okay, Roman Catholic theology infusion. This is imputation. Protestant theology says this, you believe in God, then God views you as righteous, even though you're still a sinner. And when you stand before God, He takes your faith, views you, as righteous, not because you are, but because you have an imputed righteousness. That righteousness didn't come from us, it came from Jesus. And so, really, what happens, actuality, when God looks upon us, he sees Jesus, because we are in Jesus. So, Jesus has so wrapped us around that God can't see us apart from seeing Jesus, and he sees Jesus' righteousness imputed to us and considers us righteous and forgiven. That's imputation. And I believe that's exactly what Paul's talking about here in verse 9. And maybe found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, Roman Catholic theologians hate that doctrine because they say God is being deceitful because He's calling someone righteous who isn't righteous. And I can, I can feel that argument a little bit, but it's their logic... That causes them to reject that rather than a clear teaching of this verse or a clear teaching of like 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. It's in Jesus that we become the, the righteousness of God. And this, by the way, is the glory of the Gospel. is that though we are sinners, yet we are justified because we are in Jesus. Our sins are wiped away and cleansed because He's imputed His righteousness to us. That's what verse 9 is talking about that I may be found in Jesus, not having this righteousness that that I have derived from the law, not the works that I did, but I have this righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. It's God's righteousness imputed to us. In other words, the righteousness that we have it doesn't come from me. It comes from God. It's not my works of the law. It's not my heritage or my baptism or my confirmation. It's not my standing in the church. It's not my good deeds before the man. It's not my prayers or my fasting or my, my giving to the poor or my zeal or my devotion to the Lord or my correct theology or my helping a lady across the street or my good deeds during Lent. No, it's Christ's righteousness that comes through my faith. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, I labor this point and I've slowed down really just to look at these two verses because this is the very heart of the Gospel. This is what Paul is getting at in all of Philippians. This is why he rejoices with the Philippians that they become participations of the Gospel to get this message out of the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. It's the exchange that takes place because of our faith, right? We believe God for righteousness and God then considers us righteous because Christ was crucified on the cross bearing our sins. So we're imputed to Him on the cross. It's a double imputation. It's an imputation of our sin to Jesus. Imputation of Jesus' sin to us. And by the way, imputation's all over the Bible. Adam becoming our federal head. When he sinned, we all sinned. His sin was imputed to us. And so likewise, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. Uh, let, me, let me just quote extended from Al Mohler. He, um, he says it in a way that I, a far better way than I ever could. He says, As we live in a culture focused on self-fulfillment of radical individualism. Most Americans believe that life is something of a quest and that the self is something of a project. And it's the project of self-fulfillment that they believe is the most important thing in life. And it's the ability to develop an exciting, exhilarating, satisfying and secure sense of self. In other words, they primarily look for fulfillment within the self. And you think about America, I think that's a proper, um, uh, a proper evaluation of America. He says, we are living in an age in which the primary question asked by most persons is, am I well? And what they mean is, am I well in a psychological sense? And it continues on. Therapeutic modalities and answering questions with a therapeutic response have become the reflex of our society. So much so that if you doubt this, just go to your local Christian bookstore. What you're likely to find are rows upon rows of books that demonstrate this very therapeutic worldview with just a few Bible verses to make it Christian. We have to understand that for Americans, this is normal. It's normal to be told that the self is the center of the meaning system and that the self is the project they undertake throughout their entire lives. Okay, now here's, here's what I want you to catch. Okay, this is what he said. And, and he spoke these words at a conference together for the Gospel. I think it was 2008 maybe. I forget when it was. But I was there and was stunned when he said this. It came into a book and then I, I, have, I have the book. He said this. As a result... Most Americans believe that their major problem is something that has happened to them and their solution is found within them. In other words, he says this, they believe that they have an alien problem because they're victims. My my growing up, my poverty, my this experience. It's something that happened to me I have an alien problem that needs to be resolved with an inner solution. I just need to find myself. I need to go to psychotherapy and find out all those wrongs done to me and pass them away and forget them. Or I need to, I need to better myself. Or I need to 30 days to the new you. Or I need to do what I can do. Right? An alien problem because I'm a victim. Inner solution. And Al Muller says then, what the Gospel says, however, is that we have an inner problem. A deceitful heart a wicked heart, one that seeks for sin, one that pursues its own lusts, its pleasures. We have an inner problem that demands an alien solution, a righteousness which is not our own. That's the Gospel. It's not that we've been victims and we need to figure it out ourselves. It's that we're the problem and we need an alien solution. Well, In Jesus Christ, we have an alien righteousness. Verse 9, That I may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. What's the value of knowing Christ? Well, it's worth so much it's worth the loss of everything. The value of knowing Christ is that Christ gives us a righteousness through faith and knowledge of Him. What I want to do now is just kind of take that. That's what was happening on the cross. Jesus was taking our sins so that we could get His righteousness through faith. I want to transition here to the the Lord's Supper. By doing so, just reflecting upon the the two songs that we'll be be singing. Because I put forth the truth of this passage so well. first one is Knowing You by Graham Kendrick. I want to read the words. I trust this. We sing them it'll be more engaging. All I once held dear built my life upon. All this world reveres and wars to own. All I once thought gain, I have counted loss, spent and worthless now compared to this. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all and as Graham Kendrick wrote, you're the best. Meaning you're the chief and it's kind of can sound trite sometimes. Can we change the words on that, Ryan? You're my rest. That's good. You're You're the one in whom I rest. You're my joy, my righteousness, and I love You, Lord, because I'm loving You. I'm putting all those things behind. Now my heart's desire is to know You more. That's next week. Verse 10. That I may know Him. And so if you're sitting there this week just thinking about Okay, well, how do I know Jesus? Sir What does that look like? Well, Paul is longing for it in verse 10, that I may know Him. Just longing. And so we'll try to be practical next week about how it is that we come to know Jesus. My heart's desire is to know you more and to be found in you and known as yours, to possess by faith what I could not earn, all-surpassing gift of righteousness. I possess by faith I couldn't earn it, but I have this all-surpassing righteousness. It's the Gospel, knowing you. Oh, to know the power of your risen life and to know you in your sufferings, to become like you in your death, my Lord, so that with you to live and never die. This is eternal life, knowing Christ, eternal life forever. And that song just speaks about our desire. And so, as we pass the bread, you can just even reflect and think upon that song. Just say "Is at your heart. You know, and the supper here this morning is for those who profess faith in Christ. If you're believing in Jesus, we're doing just what Jesus did, and that last night when he was betrayed, he, he took bread and he broke it and he said, This is my body which is for you. Just kind of a symbol, symbolizing just his his death upon the cross, which is going to be crushed and broken. And and by eating it we just symbolize that yes, all, Jesus, all that you are, I want I want that. And so likewise the the cup. That we drink. He says a cup of the New Covenant. That the New Covenant is this promise of complete forgiveness. Their, their sins and their transgressions I will remember no more is what Hebrews 10 says. And so if that, if you're knowing Christ and trusting in Him, take it. If you're not, the supper is not for you. It's for believers. Well, I want to I go through the, the second song we'll sing as I close my message here. Not what my hands have done. Aaron Keyes and... Is this, is this Ryan, can you help me here? Is this from an older hymn that he took? and just I thought it was an Isaac Watts hymn. Is it? But he modified it a little bit. So it's Aaron Keyes and Isaac Watts. thinks it. But here, not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear that awful load he says, these guilty hands I raise. Filthy rags are all I bring. And I have come to hide beneath your wings. I've just come to rest in you, Jesus. Cover me with your wings. Psalm 91 terminology. Abides in the shelter of the Most High. will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. These holy hands are raised, washed in the fountain of your grace, and now I wear your righteousness. Will we lift up filthy rags by faith and trusting, in coming in Him, then we have holy hands that we raise. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to Thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. Those are comforting words. It's not our zeal and our passion of really knowing God. It's God's delight to know us. It's God's work in us. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Lamb of God, can this sore bondage break. No other work save Thine, no other blood will do, no strength, but that which is divine can bear me safely through. It's only God and His grace. It's the blood of Jesus is the only way. I praise the God of grace. I trust His might and truth. He calls me His. I call Him mine. My God, my joy, my light. My Lord has saved my life and freely pardon gives. I love because he first loved me. I live because he lives. These guilty hands are raised, filthy rags are all I bring. I come to hide beneath your your wings and these holy hands are raised, washed in the fountain of your grace and now I wear your righteousness. That's all what Paul is talking about here. In light of the tremendous blessings we have in Jesus, all we have, all we do all we know, all we think, it's all but loss in view of Christ. And and with that, we can celebrate the Supper this morning rejoicing totally in Him. So let's pray. Oh Father, I pray that we would truly understand just the, the value of knowing Christ. The Lord was even at a funeral this week with many who don't know You who go through religious ritual, but know nothing of this life-giving Gospel. Lord, I thank You for the the grace that You bestow and the grace that You give so freely to us who are so undeserving. And we come this morning not because of our religious merits or our righteousness, not because of our great theology or our great work. We, We come... Only because you've promised to receive us, and that through grace our sins are wiped away in his blood. And so, Lord, as we celebrate this supper, as you told us to, may we remember and reflect upon that night in which Jesus was betrayed, when he took the bread and we took the cup and told the disciples beforehand the meaning of his death is that he would be crushed and he would bleed, but that his death was for us and his bleeding. Was for the covenant to wash away our sins. So, Lord, I pray that we'd celebrate this with joy and enthusiasm, God, because of all that you've done for us in Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.